0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we are stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the English post-punk band all the way from London. It is Wasted Youth, because I recently spoke to their vocalist, guitarist and songwriter and much much more. It is the one and only Ken Scott to find out more about his life loves, loss and everything else and just to say that with Wasted Youth they have got live dates coming up in the spring of 2023 and lots more kind of potential material that you'll hear um, more about within the interview towards the latter half I would imagine. But anyway this is the interview so after several minutes of interesting but casual chat we get down to that exciting subject that was the early musical years and formative moments Anyway Ken, it's over to you
1: I started to become aware of tunes on the radio, and when I was about eight or nine, actually, because I had an uncle who was about ten years older than me, and he was mad on music, and he always um, he had a brilliant collection. And I still got a brilliant collection, and he used to play um, Chuck Berry often, the Rolling Stones, uh, early Yardbirds, roll you know the Beatles. And so I heard these songs, I heard him playing them when I went to visit, and uh, I didn't know at the time who, who those by. But um, amongst all the records he was playing, there were certain few that grabbed my attention. And uh, like I said, but Chuck Berry um, was the first person, and it was before my time, before I was, you know, before I was into music. But I thought sort I of got him to into him retrospectively, but. Um, Yeah, he's still one of my favorite guitarists, one of my favorite songwriters.
0: Well, yes, absolutely. That's amazing. Were your parents at all musical and and sort of had any.
1: I grew up in a single parent family, just my mother, my younger brother. And uh, my dad sort of exited my life, our lives, when I was about six. And then um, he reappeared, re entered my life when I was about 15. But in answer to your question, uh, my dad had a really good singing voice, and he used to sing in clubs, and um, he used to sing amateur uh, as an amateur, but also as a semi-pro. And um, any any given chance, he will be up there on the microphone, and he did. He had a crooner crooner type voice, and and yeah, so I guess he, he was musical. And my 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 household, me, my mum, my brother. There was always, like always music playing. My mum was um, into music and uh, so my uncle. So, uh, yeah, people had a general interest, more than a passing interest, in yes. music of the day. Yeah. Yes,
0: and I have to say your your voice and those records are just stunning. You know, you've just got one of the great vo- vocals of all time. Oh, thank you, you, you very much. It's been fantastic, kind of. Yeah, rediscovered and listened to. It. I just yeah, yeah I've been mesmerised by by your vocal. Then Thank when you, you got to um, kind of sixteen, did you leave school yeah. at that age? Did you hit the road? Right,
1: um, no, I stayed on. Um, I got to sixteen, and all my friends had O levels and taking O level results. I left when I was um, seventeen, but actually, at the age of sixteen, when it was come to doing exams and that. I went on holiday and I didn't take any exams. Hence, I never left. I left school with no qualifications, nice. and I stayed on until I was seventeen, and just because I liked the sixth form, because I was the youngest one in my year. Yes. My, my birthday is on the thirty-first of August, so I was the youngest in my year. Had I been born a day later, I'd be the oldest, but in the year below. So, <laughs> way you look at, it. so I was the youngest one in my year at school. But I stayed on for another year because I really liked the um, the common room. And I liked the fact that um, it had a record player and uh, all these kids, well, 16, 17 year olds could sit around. And so it was like a social, um, big part of my social life, I guess, being in school, taking records in, mixing with, and talking, back in friends with other kids who were into music. And, but not education wise, I didn't really, I thought I know I was perhaps in one in the upper um the upper sort of in, in terms of intelligence in school, I was really good and I'd done well in all term, term work. But for some reason, um yeah, I never sat any O levels, but I kind of felt I never felt it was because I was lacking. In actual fact it felt that it wasn't necessary. And at that time to be quite honest, um I left school on a Friday when I eventually left school when I was 17. And um, I started work on the Monday for about eight months. I left that job and started another job a few days later. So it wasn't that, you know, it it didn't mean a lot to me getting qualified because in my head, I knew that my, my aim, my target was to make music, not to be famous, but I just thought if I can, Make music or sing or play my songs, and it's enough to live by. That was enough for me, you know, and that was what, what my aim was. That was my my dream, my ambition, and it wasn't yeah. about fame and it wasn't about selling millions of records. But I just thought, you know, it, it'd be a nice way to earn living, playing, doing the thing that I like doing
0: yes that's an amazing that's amazing to have that amount of sort of focus and confidence at 16 to eight, sixteen, seventeen 17 year old and and to sort of keep that kind of drive and and uh that one route because i i must admit as you as i mentioned david about david bowie that was his kind of thing and lemmy was the same age and they neither of them had you know like an alternative did they that was going to be music or nothing you know and that's quite extraordinary
1: yeah i guess so um my second job I got was in the music publishers in Denmark Street. And I went for that job solely because it was in Timpan Alley, Denmark Street. And that was about 1975. And uh, I went for a job as an accounts clerk, lied through my teeth, made out I had my level and, and everything else. When in fact, I, you know, I didn't have not one qualification. But anyway, I got the job. And I was thrilled at just being in the heart of you know, music land in, in Timpan Alley. Mm. And, and even 75, all the time I'd see musicians that I, I knew, I, what well, I didn't know, that I recognised because from the age of 15 or, or earlier, 14, I was a regular gig, gig-goer, you know. So October 1972, when I was 15, was my first ever gig and that was um, what the Hoople at the Rainbow. I Was gonna say, I bet that was Mot the Hoople
0: or T Rex. Oh,
1: <laughs> and well, you've just Mot, Mot the Hoople, T Rex, Mark Boland to this day. I I, I love T Rex, obviously, Bowie's the number one, but um, not all glam rock, or you know, for want of a better, better term, but um, yeah, I liked uh, singers, I like singers from that era who I felt had something to offer, something special, other than spandex, trousers, and other than glitter on their face. So I'd like them to have something that I thought at the time, or well, even now, was important to say, and it was important for people to listen to. So, you know, so Bowie, Bolan, Mort the Hoople, New York Dolls, although they never hit the top 20. But... Yeah, rather than Mud or Slide, I, I wasn't into that sort of glam. Right. Or I would, you know, so there's, I made a distinction between, you know, the different bands.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously from an early age, it was, you know, we, we look back now, we can sort of go, oh, yeah, that, that, that kind of glam was a little bit more kind of, I suppose... Um, Without its own potential, a bit more arty, yeah. I suppose, wasn't it? Yeah, it Rather was. Than, it was. W- w- than just kind of yeah. a bit of a a pub band who who went, oh look, put this on. Oh, and... well, let's put
1: some sequins on. We'll we'll, we'll fall into the current fashion. Yeah. Yes, and
0: we'll and we'll make yeah. we'll make a quick buck. But, but yeah, there was, there was something slightly artistic about you know that Lou Reed Transformer
1: album. Yeah, but the... even so, uh, even not all glam rock, or I suppose it, loosely. But uh, the first two or three Roxy albums, I thought was brilliant and uh and I saw Roxy a number of times in uh with Vino playing in them and as I said I was a regular gig goer at 15 I was a D- I got a job as a DJ in a pub wow and and at first I, it was about playing top 20 and what what have you but gradually I started introducing my own taste then with about within six months I was playing all my own taste <coughs> excuse me and the um the pub actually become known for its um, being a music sort of pub, and uh, and I, I'd done that for what, two and a half, three years. And I remember the first time I played um, uh, "New Rose" by the Damned, <clears throat> and Sex um, Pistols. You know, the day they was released in the record shops, I took them back to the pub to play them. Everyone looked, ah, ah what's going on here? But I know, I knew that this was the way. I wanted to go, and hopefully the people would hear it, and um, they'd also get get the buzz. You know? Yes.
0: Did you also get into slight that sort of slight R and B pub rock kind of scene of people like Nick yeah. Lowe and David? Well, I was going Brindley to gigs. Yeah, Princess I was going. Schwartz.
1: Yeah, I was. So I was going to lots of gigs anyway, rock gigs, I guess, and well, not but anyway, gigs, and then. Um, I was too young to go to pubs and that, but by, by the time I was sort of 16, 17, when I could get into pubs, uh, not legally, but you know, you could just go and I, I had long hair. And I got a sense that something was changing. There was uh, the 101ers, Ducks 2 Lux. Um, I saw the, the Stranglers when they were called the Guildford Stranglers. So quite a long way, before, about a yes. year at least, before their first single or even longer. And I just got the feeling, Bees Make Honey, and I got the feeling that something was happening. There weren't the word, the punk word punk hadn't been coined yet. Well, not in terms of music scene. But I think that it wasn't just me, but the people, the people, younger people, and people perhaps in the know a little bit, had a sense of something was changing. It wasn't the old R&B or boogie in that. It was changing. And the way the bands looked as well. You know, Hair was... A lot of bands were cutting their hair shorter or you know medium length, and yeah, I just got a feeling something was happening, and and I wanted some of it. I wanted in in on it. In actual fact, I had a a, a band. We never gigged, but with we some friends and my brother, my brother was singing and playing saxophone, and we was called Warrior, and that was we were still quite Warrior as a, the the name suggests. It was a rock band really, you know, rock a bit Wishbone Ash a bit, you know, that sort of type of rock band. And then when I started to get into these newer sort of younger bands from still in the pub scene, um, we changed our name to and I thought to to tame with what was happening. Um, we changed our name to City Kids, which I thought was a bit more street. Yes. You know? um unfortunately, um, three members of the band left because they didn't like the direction was going in. But Just leaving me and my brother, Andy We were the only two members of City Kids left in the end And later went on to um, Well, Andy, he's played in quite a few bands for me, my brother
0: Right, that's interesting Because I know, I did an interview with Richard Strange From The Doctors of Madness And he said that they, he was like 24 at the time, and he said we were like four years too early for punk or three years too early yeah. for punk. But everybody in the audience yeah. were the kids who went, mm, this is interesting. And well, and sort of basically it was a bit like that moment that most of them went and formed bands that became quite well known in the punk scene. But he just felt a bit like, oh, we're a bit too early, aren't we? And well, I look
1: well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Strangely enough, um, when I was still working at um, Denmark Street, in my lunch hour, I used to go hear the... Different record shops, but I used to go quite often to Cheapo Cheapo in Berwick Street. It used to be a secondhand, but they used to have a lot of promotional copies of records. And all it, so often I'd see Richard Strange in there at the same time, and I spoke to him a few on a, f- a few occasions. Uh, he won't remember, but I'm, I just speak to him about music because I'll speak to anyone about music. It was my first love. It has always been my first love, my first passion. And um, uh, what's been going on for my life, good, bad, indifferent, music has always got me through everything.
0: Yes, I know there's a soundtrack for every moment. But yeah. um, did you did you find yourself down at the Roxy, sort of 76,
1: 77 time? Uh, not in 76, 77 played down the Roxy so often. I must have. We must have played. I was in a band called The Tickets. Well, firstly, in 76, I auditioned for uh, The Police, except Excellent. they were, they were called the Dream Police. And I went to an audition in um uh, <laughs> a bit incongruous, but um I answered an advert in a music paper. And the guy who answered it had a, I thought, American accent.
0: Was that and, Miles?
1: Uh, no, that's Stuart Copeland. Oh, right. Stuart Copeland, a drummer from the police. And uh, we spoke on the phone for about 15 minutes. And he said, Yeah, he said, Why don't you come round? and we'll, we'll play together. And he gave me an address, and it was a Mayfair address. And I thought, Mayfair? Punk? It doesn't really add up. But I took my guitar, went round there, and it was just Stewart. And uh, he told me they had this band called the Dream Police. And he said that they got a bass player called, uh, I can't remember if he was called Sting then, or anyway, but we couldn't be there. And uh, he said, but we can go through a few numbers. So we went through a few numbers and uh, Sir said to me, you know, he said, you're the first person, he said, that, is, that I have really can see being in a band with. He said, previous people auditioned, have, have looked really good, but played awful right. or played or um, it didn't look good, but could play. And he said, lucky enough, you can play enough and you look really good. And from then on, I rehearsed with them for oh, about three or four weeks. And, um, but at the time, they'd already had a guitarist in mind who knew all the songs, a guy called Henry, but he couldn't get a work permit for this country. He left this country to go back to his own country and he couldn't get a work permit to come back to the, to the UK to, to be in a band. So that was when they advertised. I answered the ad, played, you know, about a month or so. But then they told me that Henry had just got a work permit and he was back in the country, and um, and yeah, for me, to be quite honest, I I, I was thrilled at being in a band who, who knew about the punk or you know the scene that was happening, but I wasn't too enamoured by the music. The music still sounded to me like a rock band with a few punky bits thrown in. So yeah, after four weeks, we kind of left. I left amicably. And well, the police went on. To, the police <laughs> had a couple of records, you know.
0: Yeah, they, they <laughs> you know nice
1: then after that, I auditioned for a band called Gloria Monday. Oh. Um, probably you're too young to remember, David. But anyway, they had record. They didn't have records out when I auditioned for them. But I'd seen them live, and I really liked what they were doing. There was the new. Well, I guess you'd call it new waveish today, but they had Quite a bit of Bowie in their their song structures and, and on stage they had a really good image and I thought yeah I I could I, I could like to, I would like to join this band and I auditioned with them and it went well and I had a few auditions but one day I made the terrible mistake of turning up for um, rehearsal wearing well I had a long Mac on which was fine or a great coat. Um, but when I took it off, because it was quite warm in the rehearsal, I had a big swastika on the front of my T-shirt. Again, you know, I was, you know, seventeen, eighteen, and yes. I'd seen, and and I thought anything to, to be anti-authority, and I, and I I had no idea really of the connotations or what it meant. It was purely because I knew that it wasn't acceptable, but I didn't know why. And we'll uh, come on to it later. But so. Um, they sacked me there, there and then. Which, looking back, yeah, that is fully, totally justified.
0: Yes. Did you yeah. ever see um, Cherry Vanilla when she came over to from the USA say to to England, and the the police were her backing band for a sort of a, a the tour? No. Uh,
1: yeah, I, I, I remember that she did. I never went along. No, and I saw them. I saw the police and went went backstage and said hello to Stewart, who I knew better better than the others, um, but even so, I. I this was before they had their reggae issue. It was when they was on um, IRS records, I think it was. Right. Um, it was their father, uh, Stuart's dad, Master Copeland's label, or oh, anyway. And um, but even when I saw the police after they they dropped the name Dream, they just called the police. I saw them at the Music Machine in Camden, um, at quite a few gigs, and I wasn't wasn't a big fan of what they were doing and what I was hearing really.
0: Yes, because I kept when you were talking about it, um, yeah. meeting meeting um, the drummer um, Stuart, I kept because he was also in a folk band, wasn't he? And I, I remember doing an interview with the woman who's he was in
1: Curved Air, <laughs> brilliant. In, they oh, weren't that. a folk band, really. There was a prog prog band, really. Yeah, prog, they were with prog. bits of folk, but bits of classical, and they had a violinist. Uh, violin was their, their central instrument, and actually, I quite liked Curved Air when I was younger. But um, yeah, so he'd already had some success, which I guess, I don't know, but perhaps it would explain the flat in Mayfair.
0: Yes, I think so. Yeah. And also his their dad was um he was on he was in the CIA. That's right. And, That's right. And and I did an interview with Miles because he brought a book out. So he was oh, one of really? the yeah. but he was the brother. There was like three brothers. Yeah, but I can't it was, remember it's it. a
1: long time ago now, but yeah. and, <laughs> yeah. and
0: another one. And um it was kind of kind of interesting 'cause cause Miles he, he sort of I think when he was very young, they were living abroad and he man, managed a band, I think he managed Wishbone Ash and it did really That's badly. Right.
1: Well MCA and Records was miles copeland associates which was a big label mca that wishbone ash they had budgie or well, they had lots of rock bands but that was his i don't know if he owned it but he certainly gave his name to the label yeah
0: yeah. And, and he did have a, his kind of musical moment kind of failed after, I think, Wishbone Ash, because he, he went to put on a festival and it included Lou Reed. And I remember him telling me the story that he he phoned Lou, you know, to say, look, you know, you, you've got to come to this festival. This is a really big number. And the, per- and the person answered the phone and said, well, Lou's in, you know, he's in the toilet. And he said, well, that's okay, I'll wait. And, he, and the bloke said... He's been there for three days. And
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, a great anecdote. I like to remember that. <laughs> it's in, it is in the book, and it was like yeah, the, yeah, at the yeah. festival.
0: The festival was a disaster, and he lost yeah, all the money. Yeah. And he said, "That's it. I'm not doing any music." And then punk came along, and he started to think, "Well, I could have a go at sort of putting yeah, some gigs yeah. on." And then yeah. you know, then he got the police,
1: and yeah, you know... And then we know what happened. Yeah. yeah
0: but the yeah. interesting thing was that his brother booked him for an american tour and it was a real disaster and he like four people came to one of the shows but right. one of those people were really important and they kind yeah. of gave him that leg up and yeah. then the first album then the second and, and yeah, yeah yeah but it was it wasn't yeah. a completely easy ride it was quite a lot of work and um you know you make it yeah. all and then you lose it i think he then yeah. decides but it's an interesting story. I mean, I, I love that one
1: about Lou Reed. Yeah, going back to that briefly, that um, I just thought i say that Stuart Copeland was a really nice chap, a really nice guy, and uh, he, although I was at a time, well, even <laughs> younger than him, and he felt much, he felt like an older uncle. It was only about four or five or six years, but th- at that age, it seems like a lifetime away. But yeah, my, my my overall feeling was I really liked him. He was a nice yes. guy.
0: I don't, yeah, it'd probably, yeah. it'd be hard to dislike the old boy, wouldn't it? So then 77, yeah. 78 came along. So where were you then with, with your sort of, the musical? By, by
1: 77, I'd given up re- replying to music ads for, I'd, for a, the rest of 76, although I was a regular, the punk gigs. And I saw, well, I've seen every punk band from day one, really, apart from the Sex Pistols. I never saw the Pistols, ever. But I saw every other band many times, you know, the Clash, The Damned, all all the English scene anyway, and even the, the the Americans when they come over, took the Ramones, uh, Talking Heads, the Saints. And Did you see? So, Johnny I saw all those bands.
0: Did you see Johnny
1: think, uh, Look, Many times, many times. Yeah, I saw him. The oh, last see him, I saw him get on stage and play. Yeah, loads of times. I I was an avid gig goer, and every penny that I made DJing was spent on tickets for gigs or getting into gigs or you know going to gigs and 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 that's what I did every night of the week that I, that I wasn't DJing right my god that was very impressive yeah so so anyway the end of 76 I'd given up on replying to small ads and then in 77 um I made it my intention to form my own band which I did it took a few months so while I was around the punk scene my band hadn't got off the ground yet and the first band yeah with the tickets and it was me my brother andy on drums and we had a singer called max singing of her max singing and a drummer called mark and but after a couple of gigs and incidentally that was a lineup that was recorded live of the roxy we've got a track on a live of the roxy album excellent called get yourself killed which was later appropriated by the Connie rejects who tried to pass the song off as their own. It was only after later uh, legal sort of you know dealings that it actually it became mine again. But, um, so anyway, so I was in the tickets, we played the Roxy a couple of times with the original lineup, but then I sacked the singer and the bass player left to go to college. And then I got a new bass player and we was just a three piece. And then we was not a house band, but we used to play at least every once a fortnight at the Roxy for a good few months. Right. Or more and longer you... than a good few months.
0: So you got an out you got a single out, I'll be your pin up with the B side. Guess I'll have to sit yeah. alone.
1: So yeah. This... Yeah, that was a bit un- quite unfortunate really. We 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 was we was always gigged a lot often, despite the fact that all three of us had daytime jobs, full-time jobs. Um, but we we gigged often and we built up a, a quite a lo- good local well East England following you know London and uh, Essex Kent Sussex we had quite a big following and but after about and I loved it and I was having a great time and we we were, you know we were good I think we were good uh, but about after about a year of doing that I started to become disillusioned I've become disillusioned by the journalists also by punks and also I got tired of the constraints that they expected from a punk band. And but we it wasn't a decision, but we started to jam on stage and we started to take on a, a looser sort of psychedelic almost. We'd go off on onto of eight or ten minute version of Inner Solar Overdrive by the Pink Floyd. Yes. And but just because it satisfied us and it didn't satisfy us doing two-minute punk songs anymore. Whereas they once did, but it come to after doing three times a week at shows and whatever, it it got a bit boring, to be quite honest. And so, but as we changed, the audience didn't change with us and they were still calling out for join the army. And we used to have a song called boring people and you're getting too old punk songs, really old, you know, thrashy punk songs and um yeah i got tired of it and as often i've done all, all through my musical career when it got to a stage i i just but then i got offered a we got offered a single deal by a bridge house records which was a which was a pub which we played at we didn't know them that well but they they are to do a single on condition they could choose the, the tracks and they chose those two tracks which was in no way representative of what we were doing then. And um, looking back in hindsight, um, they were too poppy for the punks. There was not good enough for the radio. And it kind of and I hated the single in well, the the whole band did. And we thought um, and that come out and about a month or two later, called it a day, really.
0: Yes, God, that's a. That, did you ever go and see Hawkwind during that time? I just wondered if you'd started getting. All slightly... the
1: time. Andy, my brother, um, coincidentally, he uh, when Wasted Youth split up, um, he was not, not in a band and he was approached by um, David, Dave Brock from Hawkwind. Right. And they really liked his drumming, and, which is no coincidence because Andy. Um, was a lifelong Hawkwind fan, and he, he must have seen Hawkwind between fifty and eighty times in his life. I saw them about fifteen twenty times, and uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I used to, I used to dig Hawkwind. <laughs> yes,
0: well, absolutely. And they yeah. were they were kind of a rite of passage when they. Let's face it. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. They were.
0: They were the business when they. It was always an experience. Yeah,
1: that was <laughs> a, yeah. The hippies was, punk. <laughs> it was, it was,
0: and it felt vaguely terrifying at the same time. Yeah, it was,
1: yeah. And, and it was... Um, Unsettling. It was, <laughs> yeah, and and also, you know, because of their drug consumption or whatever, you never knew exactly what you were going to go get each gig, but it always felt real. It never felt like uh, they weren't all dressed up in spangles and or had their hair combed. They just looked like real, and you could relate to them. I think a lot of the audience could relate to Hawkwind because... Yeah, they were of the people, man. They yeah. were so of the people. Yeah. So
0: yeah, it's good. It's interesting because I know I did an interview with um, is it Andy Blade from? Is it Eater? Eater. Was, yeah, yeah, I like Andy. Yeah, yeah, and he yeah. and he was saying that when he got to a point where he was looking before the gig at the audience, you know, queuing up, he just his heart sunk. He, I remember him saying, actually, I just really didn't want to do this anymore. It was, you know, I he'd he'd sort of moved on, but the audience was sort of wanting him to say the same, and I think he just felt like that was kind of. From memory, that was almost the reason he sort of
1: thought Yeah, I think, um, you know, the tickets It's exactly how I felt Although we didn't have the success that Andy had in Eater And suddenly the tickets weren't going When Eater was going at the very beginning But yeah, I can echo Andy's thoughts It it got to be a a bit of a chore going on stage And doing people wanting punk songs and, And the band, us not really being into it And yeah, so as I said, earlier, it. was. I've always done it throughout my musical career. Whenever it starts, whenever it reaches a point where it stops being interesting, um, we call it a day. Yes, and I, and I did with the tickets. Yeah.
0: Well, I would imagine that was that was when people started to dress like or be like Sid Vicious, wasn't it? Which was.
1: Yeah, it was, and then yeah, you got all the and then around about seventy eight, early seventy nine. You got the Mohicans appearing and, you know, the Mohawks and the the things. It was, it just, to me, it wasn't punk. And uh, I know, you know, they would every right to call themselves punks and, you know, who am I to say you're not punk? But the, the feeling, the look, the attitude, it was very different to, to the way it had been just a year or a year or two earlier. Yes.
0: Which is interesting. Slightly slightly different subject. But in yeah, the same in that in that same period, 79, 78, yeah, 79, yeah. there was yeah. a band that suddenly appeared and only appeared very briefly, um, called Rima Rima. And um, the reason yeah. I mentioned that was because Dorothy Max Pryor, who was the drummer, has just yeah. written a book about called 69 Exhibition Road, which about her period from 75 to 82. And there's been a film that's just been made about Rima Rima, who were the first band on 4AD Records. And they only only released one EP. And then yeah. decades I, I, later, I remember.
1: Yeah, I never saw them live. I never and, knew them. But yeah,
0: yeah, and then I and and then sort of a few decades later, someone found some cassettes of other recordings, so they put a compilation. And someone's made a film about this band who only lasted That's... less than a year. Which so 79's kind of a. I was just getting around to the point yeah. that I think a lot of people are starting to look at different ways of making music at this time. There was, right?
1: and and I think that um, I and Andy, not. John, our bass player so much, but I and Andy, we, we just wanted to something more challenging, a bit more different. We just wanted more. Then the tickets split up. Then I took, you know, I wrote some songs on my own. And then I thought about putting a band together. And I wanted it to be, you know, not a punk band, but I liked the punk um, ethos, like being non musicians. So before anything, I wanted at least two non musicians in the band. And uh, so we had me, I could play guitar and Annie was, could play drums, but not complete novices, non-musicians, but it was important to me to get someone, two people that I we, I, we gelled with, we gelled together and we had similar musical interests. And that is how we um, eventually, I got the, the first incarnation of Wasted Youth. There's was just four of us without a keyboard player, two guitars, bass and drums, but it actually started um, the first gig we did was me on guitar and vocals, Darren on bass, Andy on drums. And Mick, his sole job for our first gig, which was what I wanted, was um, he was going to be a, a tape. Well, we, well, he was just going to play us either play, pause or stop on a tape recorder. And what there was, I'd made loads of tapes up on my, my, in my flat of, you know, but strange noises like found sound, guitar, uh, feedback, which then I'd slow it down to half speed and then put echo on it. And I'd have about four or five of these tapes all unsynced and whatever, and the idea was to, yeah, perform live when Mixed Soul Job was sitting in an armchair on stage with the, the other the rest of us, and whenever he fancied, he would just press it the play or the pause, and then and it was quite chaotic, but it was a controlled chaos. And I, I thought it worked great, it worked great. But after that gig, Mick got guitar for his birthday and he had um visions of being, you know, like uh, Johnny Thunders was his hero, or James Williamson, who played with Iggy. And Mick started to get um ambitions to be a guitarist in the band, which he did. And so um reluctantly I said I re- said, all right, park the tapes to one side and uh, we'll see how you get on a guitar. Which he, you know, he, he practiced and but after about three or four months, um, I felt that the band were being held back really by his um, yeah, not even by his ability, but by the, the music he wanted to create was very different to the music that I out of we envisioned the was yes. youth making, and uh, so yeah. So then Mick was out of band by which time we'd got a keyboard player Nick, who again was a non musician, but it didn't really matter so much because he had um, keyboards and synth, and he could just make noises. And for me, that was great. That that was it was great. Great. Yes, it
0: was. So it was interesting that period because obviously Bowie had done his bit of experimentation. You know, with Lowe, hadn't he, and been working with Brian, yeah, yeah with his Berlin yeah. period. And I remember sort of when Bowie was doing some of his recording. He obviously, had some very good musicians, and there was the kind of experimentation. But sometimes it sounded so too good, so they they put their instruments down and all sort of move across one yeah, place right. and yeah, pick yeah. up someone else's and just it's say, great. which is kind of oh yeah, that sounds a little bit more yeah. kind of sonically interesting than what we had, yeah. and it's yeah. a bit looser. So it's it's interesting. You started playing with, um, you know, tape and and, yeah. and sort of synth, yeah, you know, uh, just trying to get that ambient sonic quality
1: rather than yeah, and it was really as a the textures and the on the tapes, the, the sounds and, you know, a lot of it weren't musical sounds and it certainly wasn't synced up or anything. But for example, another thing we had, we went in the garden, uh, me and um, my brother Andy, and we threw like loads of cutlery onto, onto the concrete floor. And so, so in a way, I guess it was a kind of primitive way of sampling really. And then we take what we recorded and either speed it up or slow it down and or play backwards just for a texture. And for me, that it was really exciting. And I and I really feel it worked. And what I'd give to hear a recording of our first ever gig. And I know that one existed, because I, I had a copy of it at one time. A friend recorded us, but I don't suppose anybody's got a copy now. But I'd, I'd love to hear it.
0: That'd be amazing. Yes, yeah, I remember yeah. in the in the eighties watching the documentary. and I had Peter Gabriel sort of smashing bits and pieces and recording, uh-huh. and, and then sort of feeding it back into the synthesizer yeah. and using yeah. that that kind of sound. Yeah. So obviously, people were starting to experiment a lot. Yeah, of
1: yeah. Thing. I think people just was seeing what they could do beyond guitars. You know, beyond the the rhythm section, guitar and vocals. Well, you still had that, but how you could actually take that and and experiment really.
0: Yes, absolutely. So then, I mean, you, you yeah. know, the sound that you start to sort of create, and and your first single, "Jealousy," mm-hmm. I mean, there was there some, there's something kind of kind of beautiful and pure about that song. Kind of, it, it's you kind of hit gold dust quite quickly, don't you? With, yeah, with creating a sound.
1: Yeah, I think um, it, it wasn't. Um, we didn't know. I didn't know. We didn't know it was going to. I just wrote a song, and I thought this is a short song. It's quite catchy, and yeah, let's do it. And we demoed that and three other songs uh, about four weeks before we'd done our first ever gig. And then we'd done our first uh, debut. We performed that. And then about four weeks later, uh, we went into the studio to record Jealousy as a single for Bridge House Records and uh, Baby, and which both songs had featured on our earlier demo. And, um, yeah, it the one thing I, what we had in mind, we, we didn't want um, a straightforward verse, chorus, verse, chorus, played, you know, drums and bass. And we, we, I, yeah, I kind of consciously made it not, you know, unlike that. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think um, given the time that we had in the studio and given that we, at least half the band couldn't really play the instruments that well, yeah, I thought it was, um, it was a, Brave attempt
0: yes and it's interesting because your vocals are so um dominant aren't they in the in the kind of mix but then when you were talking about a kind of Crooner you have got a voice which does lend itself to something quite sort of deep and and has a sort of a depth to it doesn't it which yeah kind of, uh, you're I a proper think, singer basically aren't you <laughs>
1: well no, well I, I, I would disagree there David um I've always had a deep voice a baritone voice or whatever and if I sung songs and I'm in a higher range, I'd have to reach for those. My my natural range is much lower, but um, I think, but I still wasn't a singer. I, I didn't consider myself a singer um, until after Wasted You, Freddie, and I'd done some recordings on my own, uh, and, you know, occasionally Andy would play some songs on uh, some instruments, and so Rocco would play guitar, but basically there was, it was, my song's Adrian, and um, and because I was singing much more often, um, my voice got better. And I think, yeah, uh, technically my voice got a lot better um, in the mid to, to late 80s than it, than it had ever been before. Right. But, yeah, but um, sometimes it's a problem because the, the problem with having a deeper sort of voice is that live, it doesn't always carry. Um, you know, for an audience to it gets lost in the the bass frequencies and the the volume, and so sometimes it's been a bit of a problem getting across live, and also hearing it back through the monitors because, as I said, it gets lost uh, unless unless you're playing a big Yes, yeah,
0: it's just tricky, isn't it? Because because your lyrics are sort of they have a romantic melancholia kind of wrapped in there with with yeah, certain I, songs like "I'll Remember You," my friends, my friends are dead. There's yeah. A sort of, there's a beautiful. There's a beautiful quality to the these lyrics.
1: Oh, thank you. Um, well, I, I think again it wasn't a conscious thing, but um, I've always felt comfortable about writing about singing about things that I'd either seen or I could, or those it was autobiographical, or it was an observation or social observation, or it was quite a few of the songs were about people that I knew, friends, um, changed their names in in the songs. But um, yeah, I could. It was just important to me to have songs that, that even now looking back, they're timeless. They're not. They're not uh, anchored to like the political thing movements of the day or about different things. And um, basically, my songs fall into either about drugs, sex, um, losing, you know, in a relationship, and they, they're quite basic human instincts feelings and so hopefully people are able to relate to them and that is why that is why often i've been not so much recently but i used to get asked about you know define what is this song about and i've never done that i don't mind giving people you know an, an outline but i think it was it's up to people to put their own interpretation and it also makes it more real for them if i'm reading lyrics to a song that I I know has already been defined what it's about, it doesn't leave any room for me to conjure up uh, my own um, film, if you like, in my head that goes along with a song. All my favourite songs by other artists have, have always written like that. They they tend not to write about specific events or times or, you know, it's quite loose. Yes, but, no,
0: but, I, I understand.
1: But all... all, all but, Yeah, all my songs are autobiographical, certainly.
0: I know. Well, it's interesting because one of my favorite bands. From when i have growing up was the Carpenters. I used to think the lyrics that um, Karen used to sing were just so heartbreakingly beautiful. Yeah, and they, they as, are. They, yeah. As, as a as a ten year old, but they are timeless and uh, absolutely. You, you, and and you know we can literally just all relate to every one of those songs because it's yeah. it's just so beautifully real, but it's incredibly raw as well. So you yeah, can't absolutely. really absolutely yeah you don't I'd really agree. need you don't need someone to sort of know why that person wrote those songs, cause, but you know you can relate to those songs yeah. because we've all been sort of in those places. So, yeah,
1: we might not have been in the same place geographically or financially, but we've all been in similar places emotionally, spiritually, and uh, we can yeah, we can relate to them.
0: Yes. So when you were doing your single, I'll remember you. You yeah. worked with the famous Peter, didn't you, from the Only Ones?
1: Yeah, that was uh, we we played. Uh, I loved the Only Ones. From I saw them back when in pubs and uh, the Hope and Anchor and what have you and i always thought that was quite special a bit quite a bit different to what else was around at the time and um and yeah i'd always thought yeah it'd be great to work with them and then we played um in, 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 in south london i can't remember where and uh, peter parrot come along and Zena, his wife and uh I think you know, as was was often true of Peter, he'd he come in for about the last four numbers because uh, he was notoriously always late. But anyway, he came in, and afterwards we spoke to him, and then um, we got on really well. And then um, we asked him if he'd like to produce our second single, and he said, "Yeah, it'd be great." Next thing, I went to his house, and we we played guitar and we sang and we we just generally we got on and uh, to this day um perhaps you know peter might not even know this but i learned a lot from him in terms of songwriting and um not in terms of structure but just how to convey what i was feeling and how to do it in word in a way other than um i love you sky is blue sort of thing and a bit more of a concealed way or, or an abstract sort of way and so yeah the only ones were a big favorite a big influence and even to this day i, I love the the music not only peter all of them i love yes well that, i love the, the, the way they put their music together
0: i know the drama of uh, another girl another planet is quite oh, it, it's, it's, fantastic. Just, it, it's up there with purple haze really absolutely like it's amazing but then with your second i mean i have to say you're 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 also one of those bands who do great covers as well don't you you don't you just don't put any old (laughs) rubbish on your covers
1: Uh, there are are some
0: bands who do terrible covers but your bands are really good your singles amazing well the cup of the sleep
1: yes oh i thought you meant cover versions (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) i think we've done some awful awful cover versions no no, Uh, no yeah um we, we took an interest uh, the band was actively involved in the design of the first uh, three singles and the album and the inner sleeve and posters for gigs and that we is a big part of it for me to having the the whole thing the music that what we wanted to put put out there um but unfortunately after the third single um we had a bit of a falling out with bridge us records and we you know for what well, for a reason well, i won't go into now but we had a bit of a fallout and uh it came to a point where um we stopped being i stopped or we stopped being involved in in anything really and it come to the 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 bridge house wouldn't let us go in the studio to record a follow-up to wild and wandering they would only put us in for uh, you know half a day here and there and so we never actually yeah that is why well that is why we fell out really Mm because i think that the bridge house Rather than thinking long term about doing it, I was just thinking about getting another single out and sell it and whatever. But so yeah, it started to go a bit well wrong then.
0: Yes, pear shape. But did you on the third single you work with Martin Hannett? This is your next yeah, producer, isn't yeah, it? Re-
1: yeah, Rebecca's room was actually a track we'd first recorded with Peter Peter Perrett. Mm. and it, it was um it was a uh, we done we done caveman with Peter Perrett. and then um we, we thought about re-recording that and making it, you know, more radio friendly or more John Peel friendly as it was. But, um, but in, instead mine, Hanit, um, became, you know, on, on our radar and I liked, I liked what he'd done before with Joy Division and, and Factory and especially the Druti column. Well, I really loved the Druti column stuff. Yes. And, uh, so he, he came and he, he Heard some tapes of us and it was great and I was really excited to be working with someone and um we got in the studio and um it didn't go as I expected really it was um it was what I think it was um quite poor he he was by that time was really dependent on drugs and um he spent three quarters of the time under the mixing desk asleep and occasionally when I'd kick him or nudge him i said say can I have the guitar louder and that in the end he just said it's that one it's that channel he's that you play it play it, you want it and so it's a bit of a waste of time we, we could have made it better made, made it better yes. just producing it by ourselves so uh, and uh, lots of people's recollections of uh, of this fantastic person, mine, honey, and he did. He has done some fantastic music, but my personal experience of him in the studio was uh, certainly not one uh, with, yeah, with fond memories. I didn't no, enjoy No, that's it. A,
0: that is a horrendous experience, yeah. isn't it? I and know. then,
1: and so then, eventually, um, Bridgeus Records then so got another. Uh, producer who took some of Martin Hannett stuff, but added some other stuff. But equally, it wasn't representative of what we, the band, wanted. And that was the very start of the beginning, where things going wrong. But I, by by, our fourth single, Wildlife, that and yeah, decided yeah, no communication between us, us oh, and the record company. God, that's that's so depressing. Yeah, it was. It was sad. Was. It was
0: just, and how did you get on? Because Rocco comes into the band during that, that yeah.
1: time. Yeah, yeah. Well, Rocco, we we had, said, so we had Mick in the band, and and Mick left to pursue his own. Uh, we we might we remained friends until till he died. Um, but um, yeah, he was he was just wanted to do different type of music. Rocco, I'd known for about two years, and I knew that we shared so many of the same musical influences and uh i just and he was playing in a, a local punk punk band really and uh in a band called smack and uh i liked him i liked the way he looked i liked his his attitude and everything what he had done with the guitar and so i asked him to join us and he said yeah and he jumped at the chance so we were thrilled he was thrilled and i think we we were on tour within a week or two of him joining and so, and the rest is history, really. Yeah, Rocco. Yes. T- t- well, to this day, you know, I've, I've always been really close with him.
0: What a star! What a star! But then, sort of 82, 83, You know, just yeah. this is the time when indie pop suddenly explodes in the UK, isn't it? Eighty-three, and then, yeah. and then, and that's the end of the way of wasted youth. Well, wasted so.
1: youth actually done I performed our last gig in December eighty-two, but it, for six months before then, it not been working out. We we. We, we played for a bit with um, Steve New, who used to be in the Rich Kids, on uh, in place of Rocco. And Steve was, was a real character. He really, and he looked great. But um, the last thing we needed at the time was to have another junkie in the band. By that stage, all four of us were dependent on opiates. And, um, and because of... We, we weren't releasing stuff we weren't getting paid um, and at the same time we asked our record label to to release us to to get a deal with somewhere else and i said yeah sure if you can find someone within well, two days we had um emi polydor um, a couple of indies were really more than interested there was you know there was keen and um a record company, House, kind of put the kibosh on that and stopped and framed them away, basically. And it come to the point, I decided this is pointless, carrying on, we can't record, we're not getting paid. And it was stalemate, really. So um, I decided, yeah, let's just quit. Let's just have one gig, the last gig, I invited Rocco onto the stage at various points. I invited Mick onto the stage for a few songs. And the last gig, yeah, it was, it was emotional, um, and it was certainly not the way I wanted the band to end, but by which time we had lots of problems, lots of problems in the band.
0: Cheesy, crazy. That is not good, is it? So yeah. then how do you then navigate that next bit? Because that's often one of the well, hardest yeah, things.
1: Isn't? Yeah, that finished at uh, Christmas, 82. Then in 83, I put my feelers out, I was speaking, and for a while I was rehearsing with um, a band called The Soft Pulse, which was Alvin Gibbs on bass um, of the UK subs and also Iggy. Um, Mel Wesson on keyboards, who was in TV Smith's band. Nicky Garrett was in um, UK subs originally. And the drummer was a guy called um, John Toll who played with Generation X, the original Generation X. We was, we was made up really a band of all ex-punk musicians. Yes. John Steele left after a month or so. So then Andy, my brother, joined the band, and we we done some recording. We recorded from EMI, and we had some good songs. But um, I think at the time my my own addiction was completely out of control, and um, the mu- their music. I say their music because they only did one of my songs, and their music was really shiny quite poppy and it wasn't really what I wanted to do plus I, I at the time I thought my time could be spent better um finding money to buy more drugs with Yeah, yes. that was my, my that was my priority
0: yes well I, I yes I could imagine so then I mean so that's the the music how do you because I did an interview with a guy who's just written a book called Patrick O'Neill who talks about his own kind of addiction and how he Oh, God, actually, he goes and robs the bank and ends up in prison. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Um, how do you sort of manage to sort of navigate somehow getting out of that kind of vicious cycle? Well, I, I, I
1: didn't really. I didn't navigate it. It was kind of imposed. In 1994, I was arrested for um, possession of heroin, we're in supply, and I went to prison for two years. And um, looking back, well... Not even looking back at, but I consider it. It saved my life. It saved my life, because yeah, my life was a complete and total mess. I went to prison for two years. I wrote two or three songs in prison. I don't know if I recorded them, but I borrowed someone else's guitar and I wrote some songs. And um, I got myself fit. And uh, yeah, and I come out of prison with a vowed intent: never, ever to touch um, heroin again. Unfortunately, all I did was switch my heroin dependency into ha- alcohol misuse. And from the day I was released, there was me thinking, oh, I'm clean. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm clean all that. But at the, same, at the same time, I was, within a month, I'd become addicted to heroin. Where uh, sorry, I become addicted to drink. I couldn't, Mm. I couldn't do anything unless I'd had a drink, and uh, it just went on from there. Really, with drinking more, being more of a liability. Um, Gradually, friends stopped wanting to come out with me because I'd get so drunk. And by the end of you know, after a few years, I was just permanently topped up. Plus. Every other drug except heroin. So it, you know, I wasn't a pretty picture.
0: No, jeezy queasy. How long did
1: that, that last? Did that sort
0: of go um, on for most well, of the
1: 90s? No, 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 not at all. No. Um, strangely enough, although my life was a complete car crash, um, I, I was in a band called the Low Gods, which was, um, which, Coincidentally, was the drummer who's now in West youth Alan so I've known him since the, the mid 80s and um, he' said yeah now a drummer in West of um, youth I was in the low gods the bass player Dan was a editor at EMI records editing um, music videos right and that he then and he got me a job there as the tape uh, the librarian. Which was responsible for all the stock and doing copies, running copies of videos off for uh, different record companies and that. But then, then left after about six months, and and I'd got bored doing the the, the library, looking after the library, and I asked my boss if I could come in the weekend to familiarise myself with the equipment, and and I did, and I was um, I got offered of a job as editor at EMI, their PMI. It was a the their um. You know video wing of EMI and I did and uh loads of stuff worked worked on Kate Bush video Pink Floyd video Paul McCartney lots of in-house stuff EMI acts but also yeah. some um and I was doing all that but I, I did suffer because of my drinking and and what have you I always felt like yeah it, the syndrome I thought any minute they're going to find out I'm no good despite the fact that directors would come and say they want to work with me again so on one hand my work was really was really good mm. but I never had the belief in myself the confidence in myself and uh, my life just spiraled and within in 1990 um well the the end of 89 I'd I'd lost I, well I had a job yeah my well-paid job I had an expense account I had a taxi account because I'd never drove. I had, me and my girlfriend were living in a really nice flat next to um, um, Abbey Road and things were looking good materialistically but inside I was in bits and then eventually I had um, I was working one night with um, a director and I had a big seizure through, through the alcohol in the editing suite and at the time nowadays I think you'd be different. You'd they'd try and help you into getting treatment. But at the time, um because I'd scared the director so much with this 20 minute seizure and whatever, um they sacked me. And um, mm. and I didn't I didn't know what to do. I I I had no money, nowhere to live, my girlfriend left me and I'd gone from all these positive things to walking down the street with my belongings in a plastic carrier bag and it was a real fall from grace and um mm. and i went for a few months um continued carried on drinking Rocco came around tried to get me t- to he brought a guitar around and a four track round to try and give me some kind of um incentive you know or t- something to do and yeah i attempted to know a, a couple of songs i did demo and a good songs. I think they're good songs. And Rocco played on bits and pieces. But ultimately, um, my addiction got in the way and I couldn't I couldn't get it together. I couldn't get it together until um, 1990. And I walked into um, a place called the alcohol recovery project. And they um, got me into a detox and I went into a detox for a week. I come out with detox, went to rehab for three months. And I'd I, I, I tried AA and all that before, but this is my first proper real. I felt really proud of myself that I'd managed three months and one week without a drink. Mm. And I, you know, therapy and it's a group therapy and it's great. And I thought, wow, I've, I've cracked it. I left rehab, but within half an hour, um, I found myself. In an off license, lo and behold, with um, a can of special brew. I land, put it on the counter, and uh, fortunately, or unfortunately, whichever way you look at it, I was about 20 pence short. I didn't have enough money, and the, the, the shopkeepers wouldn't give it to me for the 20 pence I was short. And so I left the shop, and I thought, what the God am I doing? I have all that insanity, I had that second of insanity. And I thought, my God, what, what am I doing? I went straight back to rehab and entered a, a dry house with three other guys where I stayed for two years. Blimey, and, then, two and since years. then, I, I haven't um, had a drink of alcohol since September, um, well, since 1990. And um, I had a few, still, I carried on taking a few drugs in the late 90s. But I, I, I managed to get six, seven years with nothing, no drugs, no drink, nothing for six, seven years. Um, yeah, and, by, and that was through NA and AA, and they saved my life. And yeah, and to this day, um, if anyone listened to this and they've got a similar type of problem, drink or drugs or both then um I highly recommend it and yeah, it was a it's a great it's a loving bosom and people that cared not what what I did or how much I drank or what drugs I took, they cared about me as a person and it was a safe place to share what I was feeling, what I was going through and what I'd been going through for the last ten years.
0: Yeah. Christ. Cause I know when David Bowie would go to AA meetings and someone yeah. said but you know, he's sort of like, well, you could have the odd drink. He said, I can't because I'm an alcoholic.
1: No, no. And it was a bit like. Absolutely, absolutely.
0: It's like, I can't, I can't well, just have one more drink. David, you
1: know. people even say to me now, you know, Christmas were, well, you know, people that don't really understand. They say, you know, have one drink, one pint, it won't kill you. And I said, well, it might, because after the first drink, there's a second drink and a third drink. And I haven't got total confidence that I'll be able to, resist that second drink or that third drink. and also what would one one drink give me? it wouldn't make me feel good. I just feel awful that the fact that I had a drink yes. um, but but it isn't about willpower you know um, my recovery, uh, I can't speak for anyone else but my recovery isn't about willpower. It's too difficult to do to go this long without a drink or you know strong substances um, on willpower alone. And you have to find something beyond that. And for me, it's um. They call it God, but I'm not religious. I don't. I don't believe in God. But it's a higher power, if you like, something that cares about me, that doesn't want to see me destroy myself, in not only with drugs and drink and all, for all levels. They want me to be well. The higher power wants me to be well. I haven't. I don't know what the higher power looks like, but it. He hasn't let me down yet.
0: Yes, the best version of yourself. Yeah, that's good, isn't it? That is a very good one. I was going to say. I mean, did you did you did you at that stage in your life try to kind of kill yourself? Was there was there kind of suicide involved? At the no, I,
1: I I come very close to to dying on a few occasions. I had a massive fix of heroin and cocaine, which floored me. Which I really thought this is it. And God knows how, but Obviously, it never killed me. Also, I had a fire when I lost a job at EMI. I had nowhere to live, and uh, a friend offered me their brand new flat. And him and his girlfriend we were getting married abroad, and they said, um "He said you can use the flat until you find somewhere." On the first day, the only thing is the flat never had electricity, and so I'm in there burning candles, drinking. I wake up about. Midnight, the whole room was completely filled with smoke. The carpet was glowing red embers, and I think another 10 minutes I would have died. But I didn't die. I woke up. The first thing I thought, I saw this, I didn't really know what was going on, but all I could see was this carpet sort of glowing. And I tried to put it out with the back of my hands, and all of the nylon carpet stuck to the back of my hand, and it was really badly burnt. And then, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I've come, I've come very close on a number of occasions, but no, I've never wanted to take my own life. But almost every night that I was drinking and drugging, um, towards certainly for the last eighteen months, two years, I was so disappointed when I woke up, woke up in the morning and think I have to live another day of this, even though I had a nice flat and I had money. The way I felt, the way I felt about me and my life, I really felt that um I, I can't face another day, but lo and behold, here it was. and so I, I wanted to die, not that I wanted to die. I just wanted a release from from what I felt yes. and the drug to coin you know back to the the verve, the drugs weren't working anymore. you know the the, the drink wasn't working, no matter how much I drank or drink. I still couldn't get rid of this terrible, te- well, it wasn't depression. It was just every, every everything I thought about was, yeah, it was. It was depressing and it was pointless and I was useless. And yeah, it, it was an awful place to be yeah, for that so long, for that long.
0: Kind of spiritual torture, really, wasn't it? Yeah,
1: hard? it was. It was awful.
0: So then, when when you know the '90s, obviously it sounded yeah, kind of yeah. really difficult. How do you then navigate the next couple of?
1: Well, in the know, '90s, um, mid '90s, when I'd been clean four and a half years, and I thought, what do I want to do with my life? And I went, us up on what how we opened. I opened up the interview. Um, about '94, I went on an access course, a university uh, college, yes. three days a week, and. Um, and I come top at uh, the whole class. and I loved it. I loved being in uh, a learning sort of environment, but being there, choosing what I learned. I didn't have to learn all these subjects of, uh, with rubbish. I could actually pick what I ch- studied. And I finished that access course. Then I took a degree in um, applied social science, and then I got uh, qualified as a social worker. And then um, I got a job as a social worker in 97. And then um, I'm still a social worker today.
0: Fantastic. God, that's such a great... I did an access course in the early 90s.
1: Did you? I mean, well, I knew I'd seen you somewhere. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it was it was a kind of a thing, wasn't it? We still got a bit of a grant and we could well, still do that. Well, it was.
1: I just wanted to do this degree course about social... Um, about sociology, social applied social science, I, I found it really interesting, you know, the, the all the stuff. And I knew that to get into university degree I'd need to be qualified. Having left school with no qualifications whatsoever, not even bad grades, nothing. Um I had to do the access course to get on the degree course. And um yeah, I never looked back. Yes, well no what, that's is it? and so as um a thirty eight or thirty nine year old I left university with, well, um, a, a two one. I got two one honours degree, yeah, two-one. and did... my social work qualification.
0: Fantastic. Did you? Did your mum get to see you um, graduate?
1: Yeah, yeah. My mum came, and my dad came, and uh, yeah, yeah. It was it, for me and for them. It was, um, yeah. It was an achievement in the, the the ordinary sense. For me, I feel feel that I did. Many achievements, but for my mum and dad, I thought, yeah, our son finally came good. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: it's kind of you know, I'm I'm sure they worried about you an awful yeah. lot during that time.
1: They did, of course, they did, and when I was in prison, and and everything like that, and and you know, it, it wasn't only difficult for me. I, I lost, I've lost lots of friends through the years, through drinks, through drink, through drugs, through suicide, you know, peer Peers, people my age, and oh, yes. um, including my brother, including Darren, the bass player of Wasted Youth, also died young, and um, yeah, it was. I've lost lost a lot of good people along the way, and I'm I'm really so lucky and so privileged to be here. I really am, and I never forget that. I never take it for granted, ever.
0: No, no, actually, I know. I, I, sort, of, I sort of I remember somebody saying change your expectations for appreciation your life will feel like a miracle No, I always that, thought that's quite that, a nice I've touch. Not heard
1: that but that that's good that's good that's yeah. good
0: just to appreciate appreciate the most basic things so then so we had the you know the bizarre decade that is now um with lockdown and stuff yeah. then then the band you know then then
1: when does when the, does the calling come for well over the last 25 years I must've been asked at least by five different people to reform the band. I've been offered, I was offered, when I was in university, um at the time, to, I was offered personally a grand to reform, not even reform Ways of Youth, just me and a backing musicians. But I always turn it down. Rocco was asking me every few years, let's do it. And I always said no. I'd rather preserve the memories people have got of us when we were young, when before we have become so... Adult with drugs and for a year and a half and then we was a young, vibrant band, and and I really felt that we had a lot to offer. Um, but then my brother Andy died um, a couple of years ago of cancer. And it was one of the hardest things that I've had to witness, that I've had to feel, because not only was in my brother, but he was all through our lives. We'd made music together and, and he was he was like a best friend, a brother, and I was like his dad, it was a very straight well strong, strong, strong bond, and when he died, you know, after his service, you know in the cremation he was cremated, um his partner Elaine, and we got talking, and I thought, you know what this this my, this life could be all over next week. why not do it? I may not never get the chance again. And what better way to pay um, for Darren and Andy that to do one gig? So I called Rocco and I said, let's do it. Let's do the gig. gig. Not thinking that there would very many people interested, really, or even that would remember us. But I thought we could do it for our friends, close friends, some of our family. And I said, we do this one gig. And we picked out a pub, pub near where I live called Lexington. And um, we, we said, yeah, we do that. And we we got, you know, the, obviously we needed new members. And so we got a lineup. And to begin with, it was just to do this one show. If 50 people turn up, 100 people turn up, that'd be it. Be, that'd be it. That'd be, that'd be, that's enough for me. Lo and behold, within half an hour of tickets going on sale, they were sold out. So the, the promoter asked us, could we do another gig there? And, you know, I wasn't I was, I sure really, but we agreed to it. Within half an hour, tickets had sold out. And then, and this is before we'd even done gig, so we had two sold out gigs. In the meantime, you know, 20 years ago, I had a bleed on the brain and um, it's left me disabled and so I um, can no longer play guitar. I've got no, I can't use, I've got no, got, I haven't got a functional right hand and so you know, I can still move my arm up like this, but it it doesn't function. So no. it's really just it's just for show, really. For show. <laughs> so but anyway, so I was nervous about appearing on stage, and all these people that had seen us many years ago would see me. Obviously, all of us much older. Rocco, you know, forty years, four years it was since we'd done a gig. But I, yeah, I I didn't feel good about going on stage, and and I I a bit of a fear about that, really, about people would think, oh, how awful, you know, or take pity, but it never panned out like that. And anyway, so we, we had the two sold out gigs, and then Rocco had a phone call from uh, Richard, Richard Butler from the Psycholetic Furs saying, uh, Rocco, he said, we're going on tour, um, had you fancy come along making some music with us again? You, you you know, you wasted you because, 41 years ago, 1991, we supported the Furs on a large UK tour for their second album. And uh, we we remained in touch and what have you. And uh, so we jumped at the chance of doing the the Psychedelic Furs. What really swung it was the, the gig at the Albert Hall. And I thought, my God, if it ends there, to say that I've played the Albert Hall when I was 65, I'm disabled, that's something special. And I thought, you know, if Robert Wyatt can do it, if uh, I don't Ian know
0: Ian Dury, I, I guess Ian Dury,
1: yeah, all these people. I thought, yeah, I'm not mentioning my name in the same breath as those people, but I thought, well, why not? And um, we've done it, and um, and and I'm so glad that I did it. I didn't know how I'd cope about doing a tour with my disability because my my mobility isn't very good. I'm, I don't. I haven't fallen down yet on stage, but I have a walking stick for to give me some stability. But um, it's been brilliant. And um, at the time, I thought, yeah, we do these gigs and the first one, that'd be it. But people people remained interested. Uh, uh, all the gigs that we've done, have had a really good crowd, a big crowd, you know, or 400, wherever we've played. Obviously, the first it was a really big crowd um but yeah everyone said you know keep doing it and we go down so well live i was worried at one point of becoming of being seen as a nostalgia band and then but then i thought well the way we can stop that is to introduce new songs which um i've got about 25 songs which we're currently in the process of learning some of them not all of them and so on our next tour which starts on march the 16th It's going to be a set made up, obviously, three quarters, probably a bit more of the old material, but we're going to introduce new songs as well into the set as we go. So it keeps my interest alive. We're not just rehashing the old material, but importantly, even when we do the old songs, we give it a new spin. We got, you know, we could never be saying the same because a, the bass player and the drummer are suddenly no longer with us. And we got the two, um, the three members, new members, we've got. Um, two of them, uh, we, uh, well, they're all younger than me, but, but yeah, just put a different, a new spin on it. So when we perform live, we we stick true to the same chords, the same lyrics, and all that. But I think there's an edgier, and and we haven't got synth now. We we used to have synth back in the day. So any synth synth duties, I'm playing with one hand, which is great, and because. All, all through this time, since when I started until now, I've always written songs. I've always recorded, I've got hours of songs that I've recorded. but for the last 20 since I had the, the bleed on the brain, it's all been done with um, keyboards and you know sampler and whatever yeah, and, uh... and whatever because you know it's my way of still being active musically. and while it's not the same as playing guitar, it, it kind of gives it allows me to continue to write songs. And yeah. So if anyone out there wants to buy a hundred C D box set <laughs> <laughs> But yes. so anyway, that 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 is um yeah, that is where we're at.
0: That's amazing, because actually you've got... I just noted your tour, you've got six days, and, and you've got really good supports as well, haven't you, with each one, which seems to be a vaguely local band from each... Town. A local band
1: I... from each place, but we was in touch. We went, We never just left it all, you know, just for your support band. We was actually in communication, and we are saying what bands you've got, what bands have played there, what bands have impressed you, and give us a an you know, idea. So we had... A, if we didn't know the bands or the, if they weren't on YouTube, then we'd have a feel. So, yeah. And I think that that was even true back in the day. Often, we'd, we'd pick bands that we liked. We wouldn't just get the nearest, the cheapest local band. We'd, we'd try to have something that, you know, that would appeal to to our audience, not doing exactly the same, but, yeah, to bring in, And also, give them an opportunity to play to a perhaps a larger audience than they would normally. And, yes. and that is something that that, uh, that I... You know that we like.
0: That's really good. I mean, it's kind of interesting because the band does look really <laughs> look really stylish now. So the new members, because it's obviously David.
1: You... I've always had style. You've got a <laughs> lot of style. That band. Well, you know, you 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 all look like real. Yeah. But inter- but sadly, and this can be an exclusive because this is, this is the first interview. Uh, a bass player left on Saturday. TC, and she was formerly in. Um, Miranda Sexgarden. Oh, right. Yeah, and she was married to Rocco. But um, in March of last year, they decided they're going to divorce, which is a shame. They've got two lovely boys, and I love them both. You know, and it's a real shame. And TC, what she brought to the band, not only the way she played, but her personality... She brought a nice calming effect. Perhaps, you know, having a female member of the band, it kind of it made it less laddish, if you like. Mm. But uh, anyway, she, because of, you know, yeah, the, the the reason Rocco and her are not together, she's, so childcare duties fall upon her more. And she just, so she can't commit to doing a um, six states on this, and um, hopefully there'll be another six states about six weeks after, so uh, which i, I get that. And, and yeah, I thanked her for everything she's given to the band. So I was really stressed out for a couple of days. I thought, oh, we got to get a new bass player. And I, I was keen on uh, another bass player, a uh, female, just because of what she, they bring. As I said, that, that calming influence and, yes. and whatever. And so um, by Tuesday night, we have a new bass player a female bass player a girl called sabrina who's played in a band with joe a couple of years ago and she came recommended by joe who's a guitarist in wasted youth and um, if joe thinks she's good then then I, i i go for that because joe is a brilliant musician and um is contributing a lot to to the way i work to the way we work and yeah, at the moment, so I'm um, over the moon. We've got Sabrina, and if you're listening, Sabrina, welcome aboard.
0: Yes, God, that's and, fantastic. Uh, and
1: and, uh, we... and also with Joe in the band, and now Sabrina, it makes the average age quite a bit lower because <laughs> <laughs> Joe's about thirty, and Sabrina's thereabouts. So I'm not sure exactly about thirty, according to Joe. So, which is not the reason why I've got them in the band, but yeah, bit. They, they kind of have a different view of things and they're much better at things like social media and all that kind of thing, which I am useless useless. Actually, no, I'm useless. I don't even, um, I don't go on social media sites apart from a couple of us keep the Facebook page alive, a Wasted Youth on Facebook. And it gives you all dates of what we're doing and recordings and releases and all that sort of thing.
0: Yes, amazing. So does that mean then that you'll be going into the studio um, kind of soon to, yeah, yeah. to, to record well, some new material?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the plan is um, we've got... Um, When's this been broadcast, David? <laughs> well, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. So oh, um... right, that's fine. That's all right, because I'm, I'm going to announce on Facebook. Right, we've got... Um, we're reissuing on our own label, WY Records, in March... Wild and Wandering on vinyl, and it's been remastered. No overdubbing, no extra tracks, nothing like that, just remastered. So they give a brighter, louder, sharper version of the when it first came out. And it's the first time it's been available on vinyl since it came out. So we're releasing that in a strictly limited edition of 500, all individually numbered. And in a newly designed gatefold sleeve of full-color inner sleeve. And that should be available to by about mid-march onwards. The next release um, is a CD release, and that's of Wild and Wandering, but with eleven bonus tracks, nine of them unissued, all studio recordings. and so and including our first demo, the first four tracks we did, which have never been released. Excellent. so so that's coming out then in the pipeline a couple of months after that i intend releasing between about an hour's worth of music that i recorded in between wasted you splitting up and nine and when i entered recovery so i was still using still drinking but what i consider to be good enough songs to put out there so that obviously it's not a Lost Wasted Youth album, but obviously I'm singing all of them, and Rocco's on a track, and Andy plays on the tracks. And so, but it, it, it'll be a solo album if you like, but um, yeah, yeah. And, and the thing is, um, I had all these songs written and accumulated, and I had them on different cassettes. Then in 1990, and I'd not played them to anyone, I, had, I recorded them with no intention, there was just purely. That I had a recording of songs that I'd written, so I wouldn't forget one or the lyrics or whatever. And that was mm. just for my own, not even enjoyment, because I never played them after I've recorded them. Then after the one gig, but in the, the mid-90s, I got I acquired a, a dat recorder. And so I thought, I oh, know, I'll put the, all the cassettes onto one DAT tape, you know, for, to preserve them. Because I because even then I thought, you know, five years' time, no one's gonna have cassette play cassettes uh, anymore so i put them all on a dat tape and i forgot about it and then until um until well, I said, you, if we, this time around um we'd done we'd done two gigs already and after we'd done the second gig I, I started thinking about i'd like to introduce some new material you know to keep it alive to keep it interesting for me and so i dug out this dat tape and um I played it, and it's got about two hours worth of songs on. we all recorded at different times, and and I sat back and I thought, musically and melodically, I thought, wow, there's some really good songs on here. <laughs> Lyr- lyrically, I found them quite difficult to listen to, quite raw, very um, unlike Wasted Youth lyrics. They're very much... There's, a lot of the lyrics like as if I'm speaking to one other person. They're very intimate lyrics, very um, confessional, because I'd never thought i played them to anyone. I never thought anyone would ever hear them. And so anyway, so after the, we'd done a gig with the, on the first tour, we came back to London about 4 o'clock in the morning. And Joe and Andy's uh, partner come around and about 4 in the morning. And um, they said, I said, what should I play? And they said anything. And I couldn't really think of any. I've got about 6,000 records. I mean, you know, I'm an avid collector of all kinds of music. But I looked at him and I thought, there's nothing I really fancy playing. But then I told him about this, that I had 40 songs that I've recorded in the 80s. And I said, no one's ever heard them before. So you're either privileged or I am (laughs) deluded. So I played them. not all of them, I took, um, played them the first three songs and their reaction was like, it clearly took me by surprise. They said, you've got to release this stuff. They said, you know, it's a crime, they're, they're, they're so good, the songs. And yeah, they sound like, wasted well, you could have worked them up into a second album or a third album, which I guess they would have if I'd been together enough or if we kept going. So anyway, so I'm releasing them on, well, at least twelve or forty, at least an hour's worth of them songs, in um, on Wy Records after the Wild and Wandering one, about two months after Wild and Wandering one, and then two months after the the demos or that I I recorded, um, now about next November time, we'll have new product by the the current lineup of Wasted Youth on CD and vinyl, and that'll be in about November, and we've already recorded some of the basic tracks. And yeah, and and that I'm confident. The only thing that puts, uh, might not happen in November is because of the uh, what's going on in, U- in Ukraine. The price of getting records pressed and even the 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 stuff to make them is in really big demand. And so yes. some record pressing plants have got a year till they can, you know, produce a record from a finished master. Lucky enough. Um, I, I'm working with um, a smaller record presser, but even so, it, it takes them um, four or five months to do, which is, you know, obviously the Reddit record can be ready to go, but the, the the final six months is just waiting for it to be pressed.
0: Yes, so these are going to be on CD and vinyl. Is that the...
1: right? So, wasted you wild and wandering the reissue has been remastered, and it, the people that have heard the test pressings have said to me. I haven't got a record player. I've got a CD, 6,000 CDs, but everyone I know had a record player that I gave them to of chest pressing, unbeknown to each other. Not every single one of them said it sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. No clicks, no pops, clear the clarity, the volume. Is, you know, it's exactly the same as the old recording, just shinier and brighter and, and different, you know, remastered in today's technology, what you can do on a computer to enhance the sound. Yes, the next so that's coming out, then World of Wandering is coming out on CD as well, but with 11 Wasted Youth demos, unreleased demos. Yeah, yeah. Um, which was we recorded before World of Wandering and right up to the end, we record in between for ourselves. The next CD, the demo is just CD of my demos, where then hopefully the the Wasted Youth product, the current day Wasted Youth will be on vinyl and CD. And at the moment, I'm looking maybe next November, December. It may even stretch over into the year after, depending on the war in Ukraine and the oil prices and everything else. Mm. That's the kind of map I've got in in my mind of where WY records are going. W-Y, That's a great name. So, why records? White records? <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It it's does good. matter. Why records? <laughs> it does. Yeah. yeah.
0: But yeah. They, they, But then, is there? Is there somewhere in in your sort of soul, a kind of a the temptation to write your book? Because obviously you've got quite some well, story
1: there. I, I. Again, um, someone asked me to. I, I've been asked a few times. Um, because everyone's life's revengeful. but I. I think. Even I do so for myself. Uh, there've been many, many peaks, many, many troughs, and uh, many near-death experiences. Many, my my life, I think, has had more ups and downs than the, than the average person. I wouldn't say that um, it makes it any more special or that any different, but I I appreciate that it has highs and lows and lots of them. Um, so I, I started to write. For my own satisfaction, um, an account of wasted youth really—not my life story, but how wasted youth come about, how we, what we did, what went wrong, and all the sort of thing—as just my own thing. But the more I've got into it, I'm finding that I've just—and loads of things that I've forgotten about have actually come to my mind now, and we're writing about them. And I've written about 6,000, 7, six seven thousand words. Um, Joe has seen bits of them and one or two excerpts I've put on Facebook and the feedback on Facebook is that they really like my style of writing, uh, about why and also about my you know anecdotes and all that. And so that's really encouraging. again but finding the time because at the moment we haven't got a manager as such and we can't afford to pay a manager and it's so time consuming. you know I work full- time, I get home in the evening, it's band stuff, everything from booking hotels to booking vans to booking roadies, it, it, it so takes up so much time. Mm-hmm. So, occasionally, you know, I'll have half an hour, an hour, so I'll do a bit of writing, but at this rate, I think it'll probably be ready for publication in about five years' time, <laughs> by which time I'll be dead, and everyone else who remembers us will be dead as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, well, you, 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 you not except you. You're a youngster. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't know. I think, it's, I think it's... Whatever happens, I still think it's a great process to do, which I think yeah. is kind of it's, quite it's,
1: important. Yeah, it's cathartic. And on all these things, for many years, um, in addiction and in recovery, um, lots of things that I, I wouldn't speak about. Now I'm, a, I'm almost a pensioner, and I can speak about things and knowledge... They happened to me and knowledge, how awful I felt, but I've got the advantage of speaking to them from here, from today. And so it's looking back and what worked for me, how I got myself out of that dark and frightening and lonely place to where I am now. And and I can honestly say I'm really happy. I can say that um, by giving up the heroin especially but uh, the, the the drink especially and the drugs i'm, I'm not i'm not saying um in 1998 i got into acid house uh sorry 88 i got into acid house techno scene and i loved it i loved it was new it's different then in 1997 98 just after i'd finished university i had all this recording equipment before i had the, the disability dis- disabling and i i I'd performed techno and trance and then played to loads of clubs and I went to Europe and played Europe under the name Scott128. Released an album, completely different to anything else that I'd done before or since, but I've thoroughly enjoyed it. But while on tour, I did indulge in a bit of uh, ecstasy and a bit of um, MDMA, but more party drugs, not um, fixing or not, not heroin or all that. So I so I did, but then I come back from touring and decided That was it. I had a great time for a year and a half. It was brilliant. Now it's time to knuckle down and get on with my life as a social worker. And lo and behold, a year later I had the bee on the brain, and I was part of action for four years. I was in to rehab rehab for acquired brain injuries. Wow. And. Nice. Um, and I had to learn how to speak again, how to walk again, and so I'm left-handed now. Right, left-handed, and I make music left-handed because I sort of like, I can't use my right hand or my right leg. And so it's been it's been a journey. It's been a journey of I'm learning new things all the time about how to manage with half of my limbs not working, but also um, I'm learning all the time as we all do every day, we we, we have so much to learn.
0: Yeah, I, it's strange because I, I remember doing this. Oh, God, I've got it here, actually. I, did, sorry, I heard him talk. I did an interview with this guy. He was a rabbi, but uh, more beautiful than before. It was a story about him. Um, his life was all good, and then he has an accident, and then he has yeah. a sort of serious injury, and then he has to sort of work out that it's one of those things that, he has to almost look at it as a gift, you know, like there is like you mentioned, this kind of learning and it's like actually this has been a good thing in a weird
1: at way. At the time I wouldn't have said that. No. But now it's all it's well, it's not all past because it's continual. It's a continuum. Now I can say it was. I think the beetle in the brain, the d- disabling effect, uh, it made me look at life very differently and it it certainly slowed me down. Physically, I couldn't walk get about as much, but it also slowed. It it made me look at things different. And um, yeah, I I think, strangely, I think I'm a better person because of it. I think previously, even in recovery, I was a very selfish person. I was a very um, irresponsible person. And so I had to be on the brain. Gradually, I, I started to become this better person not consciously but I could, I could just feel that life was different even though i didn't have the physical ability that i once had i felt that my brain was almost compensating the, the way i was looking at things and then in 2007 with my partner i had my first child at the age of 50 i had my first child then a few years later i had my second child and uh, and they're Everything to me, they're absolutely everything. I, I'll name, I'll name check them. My oldest son, 15 years old, is called Iggy. <laughs> why, why not? Yes. And my other son is called Phoenix, and Ooh. I'm very proud of them.
0: Yes, well, absolutely.
1: So, so, life has really taken on this whole new way. I, I never anticipated ever that it would come to me working as a social worker with two children. Making music, wasted youth, going on tour, records—my life has taken on this whole new, new life of its own. And it—and at first, I was a bit anxious, and I didn't know how it was going to work out. But sitting here now, speaking to you, it's gone brilliant. It's brilliantly, brilliantly.
0: Perfect. Yes, the perfect world, isn't it? It's weird. Well, it's I, I don't know about
1: that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, I suppose. Yes. No, yeah. But anyway, I mean, if you, I mean, you probably answered it, but if you were to be able to whisper something to your, like a 16 year old self, starting out with that kind of experience and wisdom that you, you know, got, got yeah. is there, is there anything in particular you would have just said that, um, even if that person ignored you? I'd
1: say carry on picking up gu- your guitar instead of picking up heroin. Yes, I guess, um, or alcohol. But then I I realised that some people manage it okay. Like, by far, so many people manage alcohol. I never managed it. I'm, and I don't see it. As, it was no different from my heroin use. And I think under the big umbrella of addictions, I thought I think, I know, that um all these years I thought there was different types of things that heroin addict, alcoholic. up. Now, um, I think differently. I think I suffer from addiction from that whole period. All I changed was the, the, the chemical, the substance, but the end result was the same. It doesn't matter what. I was addicted to yeah drugs, drink, sex. At the time, I didn't think it was, but looking back at it now with the knowledge that I now have, yeah, for, for quite a few years, I was addicted to sex. Amazing. Yes,
0: I mean... And- it's
1: an interesting one, addiction, yeah. isn't it? In that and gambling, uh, you name it, uh, uh, anything that is considered a well, whatever that I'd go into it, have 'em tongs, rip the arse out of it, and and then and then end up, oh, it's all gone bad. Why has it all gone bad? But it's exactly the same pattern, regardless of what substance or what chemical or what feelings I was using.
0: Christ. Yes. It's it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. But not now,
1: but not now. Not now. I oh, feel good now.
0: No. I suppose it's the focus, isn't it? Where you put your focus.
1: Yeah.
0: The focus, where the focus goes. Well well look, <laughs> 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 Yeah, where your focus goes, your energy flows. I know it's yeah. hippie, isn't it, really? But we're all hippies. We're all
1: slight hippies. Yeah, even they? the punks under their suggestion is yeah. closing out. Yeah, I think we're still hippies. We
0: still want to go to
1: Stonehenge, don't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where am I speaking to you from? Where are you? Norwich. There? I mean, Norwich. Norwich, in, ah. The wonderful Norwich. world of East Anglia. So, yeah, yes. yeah, I took my kids there to, to um, Great Yarmouth uh, last summer. Excellent. That's well, a nice place. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: did you go to the Hippodrome? Because that's got an amazing theatre, which is just where, behind.
1: Where? Great Yarmouth?
0: Yeah, there's a place no, called no. the Hippodrome. They do a summer show. It's quite something. So um, No,
1: no, it's a really I go there and I do whatever the kids want to do and I just watch and we we'll do things together. So none of my interests really. Although having said that, my older son plays guitar. He plays much better than I could play at his age. And um he's a bit shy, but but uh, yeah no we never done, never went to any gigs or anything like that no
0: no anyway look well look ken look all the best for this year i'm so excited for you and i'm just so pleased it's kind of
1: so so kind of creative and positive it's just David, brilliant it's been a pleasure yes. and if you drop me your address then i'll send you have you got a record player Yes, we have. I'll, I'll send you the uh, remastered Wild and Wandering on vinyl. when oh, it comes the out I have
0: watch. to say, I've just loved listening to your music. It's just been
1: amazing. Your voice is just stunning. Well, thank you very much. Um, I hope I haven't disappointed. No, God. Um, and I've enjoyed chatting to you. And it feels like we're in a pub having a Coca-Cola <laughs> uh, talking. It doesn't feel like a, and it, yeah, you've obviously you've, you've done your background research which is nice and yeah it's been a pleasure speaking with you
0: yeah but look take care and yeah just look after yourself that's the main thing drop me um an email when when you're going to
1: be on thanks ken all right take care and enjoy the rest of the year
0: yeah you too yeah Yeah. it'll be lovely take care see
1: you okay then bye-bye bye-bye
0: and that dear listener just in case you haven't gathered, it's the end of the interview. A massive thank you uh, to Ken Scott. Uh, forgive me for that uh, time for that interview. Amazing uh, guy, and um, yes, quite incredible. So um, yeah, huge thanks. And if you want to know any more information about the band, like I said, there is a, a good page on Facebook, and um, I would imagine in on uh, other sort of social media platform sites. But again, thank you so much for that, Ken. Uh, This has been The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. These have all been archived, aren't you lucky? So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbeam. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.